0: Hi, I'm Dr. Katherine Broom from MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. We're going to be talking today about um, recognition, diagnosis, and treatment of cold agglutinin disease. So we're going to talk about the learning objectives. Um, We're going to be able to describe the pathogenesis of primary cold agglutinin disease, the mechanism of this disease, its symptoms, and some of the possible clinical consequences. We're gonna talk about how to diagnose patients who are suspected of having cold agglutinin disease. We're gonna discuss treatment and monitoring of patients with cold agglutinin disease using both non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic options. And we're gonna describe the mechanism of action, safety and efficacy of some of the new and emerging treatments for cold agglutinin disease. So this first module is gonna talk about the pathogenesis and some of the clinical features of cold agglutinin disease. Autoimmune hemolytic anemias and cold agglutinin disease, in particular, are rare hematologic disorders. They can present acutely in the emergency room or with more chronic symptoms to primary care physicians or other specialists. They can be challenging at presentation, especially if the clinician is unfamiliar with this rare condition. We all need to be aware of the pathogenesis, signs, symptoms, and potential risks associated with cold agglutinin disease, as well as familiarizing ourselves with some of the treatment options. Primary cold agglutinin disease, or idiopathic cold agglutinin disease, is a subtype of autoimmune hemolytic anemia. It's caused by IgM autoantibodies, which tend to react with the antigen at cold temperatures. Cold agglutinins bind to RBC antigens at less than core body temperatures. Secondary cold agglutinin syndrome is also an autoimmune hemolytic anemia mediated by IgM autoantibodies. The difference is that cold agglutinin syndrome is associated with systemic disorders, most commonly infections or malignancy often associated with mycoplasma pneumonia, Epstein-Barr virus infections, or indolent lymphomas such as CLL and follicular lymphoma. So cold agglutinin disease is defined as a rare chronic hemolytic disorder caused by anti-red blood cell IgM autoantibodies. They're most often, more than 90% of the time, monoclonal IgM antibodies and they're associated with a kappa light chain restriction. These antibodies recognize the big I antigen on the surface of red blood cells. Hemolysis in cold agglutinin disease is complement dependent, with mainly extravascular hemolysis typically occurring in the liver. Cold agglutinin disease represents somewhere between 15 and 25% of all autoimmune hemolytic anemias, And it may be exacerbated by many things, including cold temperatures. How common is cold agglutinin disease? It affects one person per million every year. There are over 5,000 people living with cold agglutinin disease in the United States. It's generally going to affect middle-aged and elderly individuals. Average age of onset is around 60 years of age. And just like most um, autoimmune diseases, cold agglutinin disease is more common in women than it is in men. It's a rare subtype of autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and it's characterized by two main clinical features. The IgM-mediated agglutination of erythrocytes and hemolysis, which is mediated by the activation of the classical complement pathway. Cold agglutinins are IgM autoantibodies that bind to the RBC antigens. We distinguish it from warm antibody autoimmune hemolytic anemia, which is mediated by IgG autoantibodies. Acrocyanosis or agglutination of the red blood cells, which is mediated by the IgM that is bound to their surface, can cause many signs and symptoms in patients. It can cause levito reticularis, as you can see in the bottom right-hand corner of the slide. It can because vasoocclusion, as you can see in the top right-hand corner of the slide, leading to cyanotic and necrotic changes in patient's tissue. If we look at a test tube, as you can see on the left-hand slide, the cells will stick together or appear to clot in a sample of blood that is maintained at room temperature. This is different from clotting. And when we look at it under a microscope, we can actually see these red blood cells stuck to one another in this form of agglutination. The second aspect of cold agglutinin disease is hemolysis. And hemolysis in cold agglutinin disease is mediated by activation of the classical complement pathway. IgM autoantibodies bind to the surface of red blood cells. That IgM antigen complex is a very powerful and efficient activator of the classical pathway via binding to C1. Binding to C1 and the creation of the C1 complex is going to allow a cascade of events to occur which is eventually going to result in deposition of C3B on the surface of those red blood cells. C3B is a very powerful opsonin, which is recognized by the monocyte macrophage system primarily within the liver and results in extravascular hemolysis related to decreased RBC survival. The C3B is converted to C3D, the red cell survives. A small amount of complement activation will proceed through the terminal portion to generate C5B, which is the backbone of the membrane attack complex, which will, in some patients, result in intravascular hemolysis related to the cold agglutinin or IgM autoantibody. These patients may have a mixture of both intra- and extravascular hemolysis, although the predominant form of hemolysis in most patients with cold agglutinin disease is extravascular. So let's remind ourselves about the complement cascade. We just talked sort of in generalities about the complement cascade. We talked about the C1 complex and how this IgM, is going to bind to the surface of the red blood cell. That IgM antigen complex is then going to activate C1 and create the C1 complex, which is going to lead to this cascading through the complement pathway to generate C3B, which is going to result in that extravascular hemolysis, and then also can proceed through the terminal portion of the cascade to activate all the way through to C5b, which is gonna be the backbone upon which the membrane attack complex forms and generates intravascular hemolysis. I wanna also draw your attention to the fact that proceeding through this classical pathway of complement activation is also gonna generate both C3a and C5A, which are very powerful inflammatory molecules. And so in addition to being a disease of agglutination and acrocyanosis, hemolysis and anemia, cold agglutinin disease is also a chronic inflammatory condition as well. We can use a variety of different medications in order to interact with the classical pathway to try to stop this pathophysiologic reaction that is occurring related to the activation of the classical pathway by these IgM autoantibodies. We can use C5 inhibitors, which are eculizumab, ravulizumab, and crovolimumab, which can inhibit the generation of the C5B complex which will decrease and eliminate intravascular hemolysis. But remember, we talked about the majority of hemolysis in patients with cold agglutinin disease being extravascular. We need to think about interacting with the complement cascade at a point that's higher than C5. And we do have available C1 inhibitors, including sutimlumab, ANX005, and C1 esterase inhibitors. We could also potentially interact at the C3 level with pegcetacoplan, which is a C3 inhibitor. We can impact the continued activation of a complement related to um, factor B and factor D, with factor B inhibitors, which is iptacopan and factor D inhibitor, which is danacopan so what is happening to these patients? Well, many of them are gonna have some fairly nonspecific symptoms, right? They're gonna have hemolysis and hemolytic anemia, fatigue, dysnea, which may be out of proportion to the degree of anemia, as oftentimes is the fatigue. They may have hemoglobinuria and jaundice. And all of these symptoms are gonna be mainly complement driven they can also develop these symptoms that are related to agglutination of those red blood cells, which would include acrocyanosis, Raynaud's phenomenon, levito reticularis, and in extreme cases, sometimes even gangrenous tissue. So what is a clinical phenotype? Um, From papers that have been published by Dr. Berenson in Blood um, as recently as 2020, we see that about 70% of patients are gonna have mostly hemolytic anemia with relatively minor circulatory symptoms. About 21% of patients are gonna have hemolytic anemia with more severe circulatory symptoms. And about 10% patients are gonna have mostly circulatory symptoms with fairly well compensated hemolysis. And it's important to really think about what is the clinical phenotype of a patient that you are managing or diagnosing with cold agglutinin disease so that we can think about how to best direct our therapy. Remember, we just talked about the hemolytic component is mediated by complement the acrocyanotic or circulatory symptom component is mediated by IgM. And our therapies may be different depending on which pathophysiologic mechanism we're hoping to trigger or target. So consequences of cold agglutinin disease for our patients, right? 50% of patients have been considered to be transfusion dependent, for short or long periods of time. In multiple studies, we now understand that patients with cold gluten disease have an increased risk of developing both venous and arterial thromboembolic events, 62% higher than a matched cohort population. They have reduced quality of life related to need for transfusions, doctor's visits, fatigue, shortness of breath, uh, modifying their daily activities. And when we look at some mortality data, which were um, presented and published by Dr. Hill and Lauren Bilsma, we noticed that patients who are diagnosed with cold agglutinin disease versus a non-cold agglutinin disease-matched population have a higher mortality rate. So what can we do for our patients? Well, certainly we advise them to potentially avoid cold temperatures. This is mostly um, going to decrease the amount of agglutination of those red blood cells in the peripheral tissues, like the fingers and the toes or the tips of the nose. This does not generally modulate the amount of hemolysis that's ongoing. We know that things that can increase complement activity, such as infections, can trigger hemolytic crises. So these patients need to be on early and adequate antibiotic therapy. Viral infections also need to be taken quite seriously in these patients because they can trigger these hemolytic crises. Transfusions, when indicated, need to be kept warm in a blood warmer. Patients with chronic hemolysis need folic acid supplementation and potentially B12 or iron supplementation if they're deficient. Adequate hydration is critical during hemolytic crises, and in patients that are having an exacerbation of hemolysis, prophylaxis against thrombotic events with low molecular weight heparin or other heparin compounds has been recommended. These management options are generally unsatisfactory for our patients. There is no approved treatment available. Many times patients are not offered any therapeutic intervention until their anemia is quite severe. We talked a little bit earlier about this being a systemic inflammatory state and many of these patients have a significantly impacted quality of life even if the degree of anemia is not severe related to chronic complement activation and chronic hemolysis. Avoidance of cold environments can be somewhat helpful but is not appropriate management for these patients in general if We notice that this is cold agglutinin syndrome and a secondary problem. We can treat the underlying disorder and hope that the uh, hemolysis and the anemia will improve. We should give these patients transfusions when necessary. Sometimes we have to have emergency therapy for these acute hemolytic crises, and we'll talk about what some of those should look like. Steroids, alkylating agents, and splenectomy, which we often use to treat IgG-mediated autoimmune hemolytic anemia, is not effective in cold agglutinin disease and really should not be part of our management plan. We talked about mortality. And here we are going to dive into it a little bit deeper. We looked at a Danish National Patient Registry from 1999 to 2013, and this was really the um, first attempt to evaluate in a large cohort uh, mortality in a cold agglutinin disease cohort versus a matched comparison cohort, and you can see that in the first year after diagnosis, the cold agglutinin probability was only 83%, compared to 96% of the matched comparisons. At three years, down to 75% compared to 89%. And at five years, down to 60% compared to 82%. The mean survival in the cold agglutinin cohort was 8.5 years and had not been reached yet in the matched comparisons. An additional study, large cohort of patients in the United States, study period 2007 to 2018, 651 cold agglutinin patients, and 3,000 plus matched non-cold agglutinin controls were identified. When we looked at events that could lead to mortality, we found that um, 35% of cold agglutinin patients versus only 20% of non agglutinin patients had experienced one or more thromboembolic events. There are mostly female patients that were included in both of these cohorts and mostly Caucasian patients as well. I think the keys here are that mortality does seem to be um, increased in cold agglutinin disease patients. What exactly is driving that mortality? we still have to try to better understand. When we looked at patients who experienced no thromboembolic events versus those that had one or more, we saw that a mortality was affected um, by having had uh, thromboembolic events.